fellow travelers, and welcome to Adventures in Security, episode 43 for February 18th, 2007. I'm your host, Tom Olzak. You can find the information covered in our episodes at adventuresinsecurity.com on the podcast page. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like me to talk about, please send email to podcasts at adventuresinsecurity.com. Well, with the new year and my return to podcasting, I'm making a small change to the show's format. The first segment will consist of short comments on news articles I consider important for information security management. This will be followed by one or two segments covering security management topics in more detail. The detailed segments are taken from my weekly contributions to TechRepublic.com, a source of valuable information for all technology professionals. So let's get started. The first article has to do with the iPod, a criminal tool. So this is pretty unbelievable for me because I live near the community of Oregon, Ohio, where a police detective called a student's iPod a criminal tool. In an article in the Toledo Blade, Robin Erb describes an incident in which a former Clay High School student was charged with a felony for accessing school employee and student records. Not only did he access them, he downloaded them to his iPod. In addition to being charged with unauthorized use of a computer, he was also charged with possessing a criminal tool, the iPod. Nice police work, Oregon. Will I still be able to carry my iPod concealed when I cross the city line? Although the former student used a school computer lab to access the sensitive records, no mention was made in the article about how this was even possible. It probably didn't take much cracking of system security if access was gained in a classroom with high school staff supervision. Instead of vilifying the venerable iPod, or any other mobile storage device for that matter, it might be better to ask serious questions about how this was even possible. What steps is the school system taking to ensure this doesn't happen again? Or will the school board simply add mobile storage devices to the list of criminal tools that are not allowed in the school so it can ensure parents and teachers that their information is now secure? On Friday, I was reading a Tim Wilson article at Dark Reading, in which he asked the question, So are users hopeless? Are they inherently brainless and or evil? My first reaction to the question was raucous laughter. When I finally regained my senses, I read the rest of the article in which Wilson makes a lot of sense. As a security director, I have days when I believe the users are all out to violate as many security policies as they can, either intentionally or because they are just plain brain dead. But this attitude isn't helpful. I agree with Wilson that most end users are intelligent individuals who want to do the right thing. Keeping that in mind, helping users help themselves is a key element in any security program. For years, I've been a proponent of user education as a first step. If there is chaos in the halls of security compliance, then part of the blame usually lies with the lack of effectiveness of an organization's security awareness efforts. This is usually the first step, but it isn't enough. Employees will always make mistakes. Yes, they're human beings, not robots. So there are steps security professionals must take to mitigate the impact of those mistakes. Content monitoring for data transfers, locking down the desktop, and Internet access controls are three good places to start. Not only will this help stop the bleeding from an accidental incident, it will also help minimize the probability of malicious activities. Wilson does finish his article with the assertion that end users are hopeless. Okay, maybe. But IT security shouldn't be. 
In another article last week, and this one at searchsecurity.com, Bill Brenner reiterates the dangers of using Telnet over connections that are not secure. The principal problem is that Telnet communicates user IDs and passwords in clear text between workstation and server. Secure Shell, or SSH, is a much better choice. And finally, cross-site scripting is a big problem in web application environments. In fact, the 2007 OWASP Top 10 list of web application vulnerabilities has cross-site scripting at number one. And yes, I said the 2007 OWASP Top 10 list. For the first time since 2004, the OWASP is actually revising their list, and it should be coming out within the next four to five weeks. In a recent paper, Shiraj Shah, founder of NetSquare, describes in detail the process for protecting applications developed using the AJAX framework. It also includes scripts to automatically scan code for cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. This is a great paper, and I recommend that anyone responsible for uh, either development or managing the development of web applications based on the AJAX frameworks, framework uh, read the article entitled Scan Ajax for, Cro- for XSS Entry Points. And you can get to the link um, by going to the show notes at adventuresandsecurity.com. So that's the end of the news and views segment. Let's move on to our first feature topic, which is protect yourself from the byproducts of software piracy. It isn't news that software piracy is a big problem for software vendors. Illegal use of applications has been going on since the first PC rolled off the line. What might be news, however, is the negative impact piracy might have on the Internet and on your company network. Many computer users don't pay retail prices for applications like Windows XP or Microsoft Office, so large markets for cheap or free pirated software become possible. Selling Office and other high-priced applications for a fraction of the market price Illegal software vendors are reaping huge rewards. There was a uh, poll done by Castle Cops in October of 2004 in which they asked the question, why would you use pirated software? Well, only about 28% of the 7,300 respondents said they wouldn't use pirated software. This leaves over 5,000 individuals, or 72%, who appear to have no problem downloading and running unlicensed programs. Granted, this isn't a scientific poll, but I don't believe it deviates very far from reality. A large number of pirated titles include something extra with the desired functionality, malware, and that is a huge problem with the distribution of unlicensed code. According to Conrad DeBeer, founder of CyberTop Cops, the number three culprit in the spread of malware is software piracy sites. In addition to downloading unlicensed infected applications and utilities, many of these sites attempt to install unwanted software on any connected workstation. And newly released software is not immune. DriveSentry researchers found malicious keylogging software and spyware on about half of the cracked Vista downloads available on the Internet. So why should you care? Well, putting aside all the arguments about the evils of software licensing practices, the fact remains that using pirated software presents three business risks. First, the large number of users around the globe that install pirated software increases the potential for botnet recruits. As the number of bot-infected systems increases, so does the potential for more spam, denial-of-service attacks, 
and targeted attacks against specific industries, organizations, or governments. The second issue is the infiltration into businesses of malware installed by employees or carried in by vendors on laptops. Essentially bypassing perimeter anti-malware controls, infected pirated software can be inserted into an enterprise network by often well-meaning employees. Finally, even if an organization has a well-run patch management process, chances are that illegally installed programs will not be on the programs to patch list. Unlicensed and unpatched programs increase business risk as vulnerabilities are discovered and exploits released into the wild. So how do you mitigate the risk? Protecting an organization's network from external threats caused by the distribution of infected software requires the same controls that should already be in place. Firewalls, malware scanning solutions, and intrusion detection and prevention solutions are the first line of defense. The infiltration of malware through employee or vendor action requires taking the perspective that system-specific security perimeters must be established internally to protect an organization's critical information assets. Network segmentation and workstation health enforcement through the use of VLANs, secondary VLANs, and network access control are a good start. These controls should be supplemented by removing users' local administrator access, thereby preventing the installation of any applications by anyone except authorized IT personnel. For those organizations in which local administrator access must remain, management should consider the implementation of a solution to restrict installation of software. This protects against the inadvertent infestation of a network, as well as the implementation of software not on the patching team's radar. Surf Control's Enterprise Threat Shield is an example of a product that controls both the execution and installation of software by either individual program or by application category. Even a well-designed layered defense isn't 100% effective against attacks. As the number of potential attack launch points increases, the possibility that something will get through also increases. The best way to defend against the growing threat caused by illegal software is to support efforts to enforce software copyrights. And because many software companies are pricing their products at a point that encourages piracy, I believe pressure should be applied to encourage more realistic licensing and pricing models. The final topic for this podcast is the use of risk management for reasonable information asset protection. Selecting the right security controls can be a daunting task. By applying the principles of risk management, however, security managers can meet the challenge with confidence. So what is risk? The easiest way to define risk is by examining the, fo the formula risk equals threats times vulnerabilities times impact. Reducing any one of the three factors, threats, vulnerabilities, or impact, results in a significant reduction in risk. A threat is any technological, natural, or man-made cause of harm to an information asset. Vulnerabilities are weaknesses in the security of an information system that might be exploited by a threat. Examples include programs that haven't had patches applied, unlocked computer rooms, and weak or widely known passwords. A threat exploiting a vulnerability resulting in the partial or total loss of one or more business assets constitutes business impact. From a mitigation perspective, the three factors are not equal in the effort required to reduce risk. It's very difficult for a security manager to reduce threats. She has very little control over malware in the wild or how well law enforcement is doing in its efforts to stop criminal activities. 
business impact is a little easier to mitigate. As we'll see later in this episode, financial impact can be softened with insurance coverage. The easiest way to reduce risk, however, is to implement controls to reduce vulnerabilities. Patching, anti-malware software management, and the implementation of proper access controls are just three approaches to vulnerability reduction. So what is risk management? Well, risk management is about identifying risk, assessing the impact on your business if a security incident occurs, and making the right financial decision about how to deal with the results of your assessment. It also includes the implementation of a program to continually measure and assess the effectiveness of existing safeguards in protecting your critical assets. Managing risk is not a one-time activity. It's an ongoing process. And this process consists of four phases. Assess, analyze or evaluate, manage, and measure. The first phase in the cycle is the execution of a risk assessment. The objectives of the assessment are to 1. Identify critical information assets. 2. Discover possible threats to the identified assets. 3. Identify vulnerabilities to the discovered threats and the associated probability of exploitation. And 4. Calculate the risk associated with each asset. Risk can be calculated using either a quantitative or a qualitative approach. Quantitative assessments use actual dollar amounts to provide a financially-based risk value. Qualitative assessments use scoring methods and the experience of employees and consultants to arrive at a risk score. You can get examples of each one of these types of assessments by visiting links that are in the show notes at adventuresinsecurity.com. The quantitative approach is easier to present to executive management because it deals with actual numbers. However, it's very resource-intensive. Attempting to calculate actual dollar values for business impact is difficult, if not impossible in many cases. A qualitative assessment is easier to perform, and although it might not provide hard dollar amounts, it should get you close enough. After you've calculated risk scores, you should be sorted, they should be sorted from highest to lowest. This allows you to address the highest risks to your information assets first. There are essentially four ways to deal with each risk. You can reject the risk. and Rejecting risk is the head-in-the-sand approach, however. Some managers tend to ignore difficult challenges with the hope that they will simply disappear. This approach will rarely result in a successful defense against security incidents. Or you can accept the risk. A common action to take is to accept the stated risk. For example, if the controls necessary to eliminate or mitigate key vulnerabilities are a greater financial burden than the actual risk impact, then it's probably a good idea to use the security budget dollars in other areas. An alternative to accepting higher than reasonable risk when the cost of controls is too high is to purchase insurance to lower the business impact of an incident. This is called transferring the risk. This is also a common risk management step. And finally, you could choose to mitigate the risk. Risk mitigation typically focuses on vulnerability management. The reasonable and appropriate implementation of administrative, technical, and physical controls can serve to significantly reduce business risk. Finally, it's important to measure the results of the actions taken. Controls sometimes fail to work as expected, and threats are a moving target. Only continuous vigilance through measurement and analysis can maintain risk at an acceptable level. 
An important takeaway from this discussion is the understanding that the goal is rarely to reduce risk to zero. The cost is usually too high. Rather, the goal is to lower risk to a level acceptable by management and keep it there. Well, that's it for this week. And uh, I hope we were able to help you make your network just a little bit safer. And again, the show notes are available at adventuresinsecurity.com on the podcast page. And until next time, be careful what you click.